Hello, everybody, and welcome to That Co-Production Podcast. So I'm Nicola. I'm Nicola Hutchinson-Pascal from The Co-Production Collective. And we are all about supporting um, co-production in both research, policy, and service development. And today on That that Co-Production Podcast, if I can say that, uh, (laughs) my words are a little jumbled there. Um, Today, we have turned the tables. As you may realize, the, the normal um, hosts are actually the ones being interviewed this time. And I will be interviewing members of the RDS, so the Research Design Service Southeast Patient Public Involvement and Engagement Team. So Julie, Julie Wright, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, Nick. It's lovely to see you. Yes, so I've been involved with the RDS PPI team for a while now as a as a lay member. So somebody who is a member of the public and and has been a patient. I've had experiences of uh, sort of lived experience of mental health services and long term physical health issues as well. Um, and yeah, it's been really fascinating time for me at the RDS recently with. Uh, much more emphasis on co-production happening. Um, My other interest in co-production is that um, I co-founded a a charity running Nature Connection courses for people with mental health issues just over 10 years ago now. And that was a real sort of experiment in in co-production for the group of us that devised it and continues to be to this day and very, very positive outcomes, but obviously not without its challenges as well. Absolutely. I I didn't know that about you, Julie. Learn something Uh new every day. Gary, what about you? Gary Hickey. Hi, uh, thanks, Nick, and thank you uh, uh, for doing this. Gary Hickey. And I'm the patient of public involvement and engagement lead at the Research Design Service Southeast. So thank you very much. And over to you, Katie. Katie Turner. Hello, everybody. Uh, Lovely to be here. Feels quite strange being on the other end, but looking forward to it. Uh, So like Julie, I've been involved with the Research Design Service Southeast for a good number of years, over 10 years as a lay reviewer. I'm also a researcher working from lived experience, both in uh, working at St George's, University of London and Lance. Great, thanks Katie, it's, it's lovely to see you again. Okay, so we're gonna get started with a, a little bit of an icebreaker. I've, I'm gonna set you a little bit of a challenge. If you were a kitchen utensil, what would you be and why? And I'm going to throw that one over to, oh, who shall I start with? Gary, how about you? Right, okay, thank you. This is a tough one, isn't it? Uh, I don't know if it's strictly speaking, it is a kitchen utensil and I haven't got it. But I thought of a Swiss army knife, right? Mm -hmm. And my rationale would be, is because I think I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, but an absolute master of none. So that was my rationale for Swiss Army. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, a Swiss Army knife is for anything, right? So it can be a kitchen utensil. I think I'll let you have that one. Um, Katie, how about you? Mm, I don't. I certainly don't have a Swiss Army knife in my kitchen, Gary. So you sneak that one in. <laughs> um, uh, well, my immediate reaction was a wooden spoon because I just thought, well, you'd always have loads of variety and you'd never go hungry. Brilliant. I like it. And Julie, what about you? Oh, I love those. Thank you. 
the first thing that came into my mind was an image of an orange squeezer mm. squeezing orange juice into a glass. And I think it was something about that I, I have quite a driver to to sort of make people smile, to be warm and welcoming. And um, there's something about a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice that sort of makes me go, oh, lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And it's good for your health as well, all that vitamin C. Exactly. Yes, I'm really good for your health. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, so shall we start with some questions then? And I think I'm going to throw this one over to Katie first. What do you think when I say to you, Co-production is a way of being, not doing. And I'm looking for your gut reaction first, please. And then in any other thoughts that you may have. Thanks, Nick. Well, my gut reaction to this was, uh, must might sound a little bit pretentious or trite, certainly not meant to be, but it was, you've got to be before you can do something. I really feel that that rings true for me around co-production. It's so much about, process about working together and being you know rather than just doing we I think we do far too much doing and not enough being so for for me the being comes before you can actually start the doing Mm, yeah I'm with you there anybody want to add to that Gary maybe yeah I thought this and I immediately thought that actually yeah because co-production is about and this is something I think Katie said to me one of her very first meetings around this is about it's about attitude and culture rather than a set of rules or instructions. So there's something there about valuing people and the emphasis, I think, on developing relationships. So it's a less transactional thing. And I think that's a really important part. And it's focusing on that rather than just saying, I'm developing this relationship because I want to get to A to B. And there's something about valuing that, just being. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you. And when, when talking about co-production, I try not to say that sentence, especially too early when we're working to support somebody who perhaps doesn't understand what we mean by co-production, because I find it scares them off sometimes. But Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you, you get the eye roll. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Always. Yeah. But for me, it's such a values-based thing that my values have to align with that, I feel, in order to be able to do it. And that if your values don't align, you might find it more difficult perhaps to do genuine authentic co-production Julie did is there anything you wanted to add yeah absolutely in agreement with all of you and I think what came up for me was that I've worked with people who I would say are really embodying co-production the value of co-production as I understand it but they wouldn't even know that word and it is it's about their way of being it's about their way of sort of naturally valuing the voices of those around them yeah Mm, absolutely and I probably shouldn't admit this but I will um before coming into this role I actually didn't know co-production was a thing you know it was just how it's how how I worked and I came into academia and they were like co-production patient public involvement rah 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 and I was like oh okay what are all those things (laughs) That's why I think the values bit is so important. It's not about definitions. It's for me anyway. It's about values. Okay, my next question, and I think I'm going to pose this one to you, Gary, first, is have you thought about the fact that some groups or people may be excluded from co-production? 
you know, perhaps um, due to the situation they're in or the fact that actually they are part of a group which is already marginalized by society. And I guess I I'm interested to know, how do you go about making sure that you're, you're being as inclusive as possible in the co-production that you're doing? Yes, thanks. Yeah, there's many groups, I think, as we know, that are underserved by research and something I've been working on recently, and indeed serve you, because I understand you're doing a chapter as well. Uh, it's a book that um, Ollie Williams uh, and a previous guest on this podcast is leading on, and it's about co-production during COVID, the impact of COVID, if you like, on co-production. And the focus is very much on, on those groups that are seldom heard in research and are very much under underserved by research. And Obviously, our hope is that, that this gives those group of marginalised people and groups uh, um, something of a voice. I'm not suggesting, I'm not pompous enough to suggest that, um, that the book's going to change the world. But, but it does get it out there. And, and hopefully we can do more of that type of thing and, and put it in our consciousness, I, I think, about thinking about when we do work, about um, thinking about those groups that are underserved by research. So that's I'm just going to throw that out there. Mm, I think that's so important because co-production is by nature supposed to be a wholly kind of inclusive practice or way of being way of doing research and if we are whether consciously or unconsciously not including groups such as prisoners those who are homeless you know there's all sorts of groups that actually are missed out when it comes to co-production and I think that's hypocritical really if co-production you know <laughs> we're talking about wholly inclusive being wholly inclusive then actually I've been challenging myself and the co-production collective to think differently about this because there's a there is definite gaps I think. I think it helps Nick if our institutions we work for universities etc place a, a greater emphasis maybe and a value upon um, engaging with different parts of the community and if they value it more it would give us more time to do it again, as opposed to that idea of everything being transactional, that I've only got to engage with this group because I'm on this piece of research. So I think there needs to be a bit of a change in culture, which we'll probably come on to later anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Julie or Katie, was, was there anything you were wanting to add around this one? Julie, don't, didn't know if you wanted to say, but I'll jump in. Yeah, I think it's an area we collectively should do much more about. I think there are people striving to make co-production more diverse, but I do think there's, there's a heck of a, a lot of work to do. And, and I count myself in that. And I think quite a lot of it's to do with the structures within which we work, very much so. But I do think that we, we can heap the blame on structures and frameworks and systemic things without including ourselves in that equation. And I think it is a personal responsibility as well as a, an organisational one. And, you know, I work in the mental health field and I'm very aware that there's a, a very articulate and vocal group of, of survivors who feel quite understandably marginalised and uh, shut out of, of the consultation co-productive process, May, maybe because what they have to say is too unpalatable. So I just think that there's an awful lot that we should do more I don't know whether putting it further up the agenda is a bit of an answer and sort of before we consider anything else, let's try and tackle this and do that. I, I don't I don't think I have the answers, but I do think it's a personal responsibility as well as an organisational one. It's something that we should always constantly striving 
to make our processes more diverse and challenging ourselves to say, have, have I done enough? What can I do? Willing to you know sometimes we get it wrong uh, and, we aren't, and we're not doing enough. It's a really difficult area, one that we should be constantly talking about. Mm, yeah, I absolutely agree. Julie? Yeah, I think this question brings up something for me about, I think in the first question I was talking about sort of the importance of valuing everybody's voice. And to me, it seems like one of the core underlying principles of co-production and doing it well involves like a genuine belief that everybody's voice is valuable, that everybody actually by virtue of just being a unique individual has got something within them that will contribute positively to a group. And I think one of my values base that's led to me being interested in co-production is partly formed, I suppose, from my having struggled with long-term health issues and feeling very much like some ways I've got a lot of power and privilege I'm kind of white middle class well educated but actually when I started struggling with with health issues that really impact on my ability to be valued by society actually I really started understanding how many people in society just aren't considered valuable at all I've been doing a course with uh, Glinda University about co-production and they led me to Professor Khan's book about no more throwaway people and I was really moved by that title and his experience of going from being a sort of high achieving academic to suddenly having a heart attack and being the recipient of care and feeling you know that real lack of personal value and just how easy it is for us in our society to think that some people are worth something and some people's contribution is valid and other people's just isn't and the intention of co-production to actually really make a positive effort to create an environment where where people feel enabled people feel confident to contribute yeah I think it's a it's a really important thing in the world that we live in just on that point I mean I feel like you may not want to put this in the podcast but that's partly what being part of the RDS in the last couple of years has meant to me that I feel like I've been really supported and encouraged to feel more that I've got something valuable to offer and I wouldn't in any way say that I'm kind of one of the most marginalized groups in society at all but I think creating that sort of accessible welcoming environment is is a first step to to getting everybody involved getting everybody's voice heard definitely that's amazing to hear thanks Julie I suppose for me, yeah, the, the reason or one of the reasons I was thinking about that question was that I think there's quite a push to to make sure that groups involved in co-production are diverse. But aside from that, there's all these groups that don't even come into the psyche almost. That it's almost like an unconscious of kind of just the groups are just left out and just not thought about sometimes. And I think that's why I wanted to raise it. And all the things that you guys have said, I, I agree with. It's, it's so important that this is challenged and that we challenge ourselves, I think. One thing that just sprung to mind whilst you were speaking, Julie, as well, is around, <laughs> this is a whole other question in itself, maybe, I, but I just want to flag it as something I think we should all be mindful of being digitally inclusive or of avoiding digital exclusion in current times, you know, with COVID and the fact that lots of people are, are shielding and there is no face-to-face meeting it's just making sure to use a, a diverse set of methods 
in setting up co-production, you know, whether that's a video call, a phone call, a document that people can write on by hand if they want to. That's something we've definitely tried to do a lot with co-production collective is to think outside the box because not everybody can or wants to be on a video call, do they? So I've appreciated that in my work with the co-production collective as well. It feels like there's a really genuine impulse to, to be creative about how you can involve people and especially in these times, the sort of digital overload. Thank you. <laughs> I guess I think that's important from that in terms of reaching groups that might not otherwise engage. On to the next question. When was the last time you challenged yourself in, t- in relation to your co-production? Why did you do this? And what was the challenge about? And um, Julie, how about we start with you? Thanks, Nick. Well, the first thing that springs to mind is my involvement in this podcast and these podcasts generally. You know, I'm, I'm part of the RDS PPI team and we're putting a focus on working in a way that sort of embraces co-production and when the podcast series was suggested I sort of thought oh that sounds quite interesting and somebody said oh hey Julie why don't you get involved in that and I was like oh yeah okay I'd be really happy to get involved in that but I'm not saying anything (laughs) I'll be part of the team that discusses it but I'm not speaking I couldn't possibly do that and there was a, a gentle encouragement of uh, more than one person kind of saying go on I think you'd be great why don't you just give it a try if you don't like it it's fine and and it felt really important to me you know one of the central issues with with co-production is about power sharing isn't it and I sort of felt really conscious of the fact that I can't claim to be positive about co-production and wanting power sharing to to be the basis that we work on and not step up and not claim my own power in the situation there was a lovely quote I heard recently from Alice Walker um the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any and I kind of thought if I genuinely want to be part of a co-produced project then I need to be brave enough to go okay I can do that you're you're amazing at it Julie so you know (laughs) You're right up there. <laughs> um, Gary or Katie, any thoughts? If I can jump in, yeah, I suppose for me, um, think of what Julie said, it was maybe when I started the RDS, it, it was putting forward that idea is should we work co-productively? And everyone, Julie, Katie, sort of said, yeah, absolutely. And, and that was great. But then there's that feeling, and I guess this is part of co-production, of the uncertainty. It's like, okay, that's great. Now what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And uh, like we had sort of no plan. It was genuinely a blank piece of paper. So that was a little bit uh, um, challenging. But obviously it becomes less challenging because of people like Katie and Julie, because of their experience of working co-production. And I think being able to manage and cope with the uncertainty that I think it brings. And I guess it suits my, my approach anyway. You'll never get anything done by planning. Just jump in and just let things uh, emerge and evolve. And I think thus far, it seems to work in. Um, I think we're doing some really good stuff, but obviously time will tell. Great. What about you, Katie? Uh, just just having a think, really. Going on from what you were saying, Gary, about, well, and, and Julie, about sort of working co-productively as a, as a unit and 
maybe having a real emphasis in the last sort of year or two on working co-productively and what that means. And I think one of the things we did to try and help us sort of think about or even have a chance to reflect about about that was um, Gary, for his sins, <laughs> I, I could come up with some kind of co-production framework. And I think, Gary, the reason you asked me about that wasn't particularly because I was the the person that would come up with the best framework so much would that but that I had done some research into it I'd actually been working on some research about producing some kind of tool for assessing co-production so I, I sort of said okay well, I'll have a go and I think the challenge came from moving from sort of looking at co-production as part of a research that I was doing to actually putting that into a practical application that I was a part of and that I was doing for a group of people. So I, was look, I looked at the sort of work I'd already done in the research capacity. And I remember having a, a few conversations with Gary about this and saying, well, you know, do you think this is sort of fit for purpose? It's all very well, you know, coming up with something very much on paper, but actually is it gonna work in practice? And um, I had to really think and so actually what I came up with was something a lot less prescriptive, but just a very basic framework. And then uh, I'll hopefully sort of put it to people and said, well, look, this is the framework, but it's up, up to all of you and, and all of us to, to make of it what we will. So that, that was a real challenge, but um, one that I've learned a lot from, I think. Mm. It's worth saying as well, I think it worked really well when you ran that reflexive session. I think it worked really, really well. And and, I, and for me, again, I think what Katie was also sort of uh, implicit there, was, again, was that uncertainty, because we're all fixated, aren't we, is, is it going to work? Because that's the, that's the culture and the environment we work in. And actually, sometimes it's about saying, do you know what, if it doesn't work, it's not a disaster, and we'll learn from it, and we'll improve it slightly. And I think it's a bit that change in culture and attitude. But actually, what Katie did worked perfectly, and we had a really good session. Well, that, yeah, that's, really that's nice of you to say, yeah. Gary. <laughs> I, I think it's that it's, it's putting your money where your mouth is, really, isn't it? It's kind of actually making yourself vulnerable, I think. That, to me, is mm. a challenge it, because it is about, you know, sitting down and reflecting together about how we do work together. And that can sometimes throw up some, you know, some, some challenging sort of dynamic things that we, we need to sort of think about and learn about ourselves, etc. So... Mm. Yeah, that can all be quite a challenge. I did a session with West Midlands um, Applied Research Collaboration and you know, we had breakout rooms. And one of the researchers made the point, co-production also, you need to show humility. And I think that's what you're saying as well, Katie, that little bit of vulnerability of just putting some stuff out there, yep. putting yourself on the line a little bit and showing that humility that when, when things perhaps don't go as well as you wanted or don't work and being okay about that. I also think, Casey, on the day, you set a really nice tone as well, because you did say, look, first time we've done this uh, like this, and everyone's got to be kind to each other uh, and constructive. And there's nothing wrong with saying wasn't happy or didn't like that. It didn't work. But let's be kind to each other. And it worked really well. I feel like you both just mentioned some really important things there, like your phrase, Katie, about making yourself vulnerable. I think, you know, if people striving to work in a co-produced way 
just could allow themselves to be a bit vulnerable that goes a really long way to sort of building relationships and creating something special and Gary you talked about kindness again that's not mentioned often that word in the co-production literature that I've come across sometimes but I think it's absolutely essential sort of basic human value that that we all need and we all respond to Mm, yeah totally agree the the relationships part of co-production is so so important and those things all underpin that and reflection is is the reason I kind of wanted to ask that question of you guys you know it's so important to be able to reflect back when co-producing and to learn as you go and I suppose I should probably answer that question given I set it for you my response would be fairly recently actually in a in a meeting situation a co-production meeting and um I reflected back afterwards around kind of my, my, I suppose my bias and my, so being somebody who tries to always co-produce and put myself in the situation of others and, and really try to, to do it properly. I realized actually in a meeting that I had perhaps assumed that some people felt what I felt and that they felt a part of it and that it didn't feel tokenistic, but there were other people in the room that perhaps, weren't acting in the way I was. And also there was other people in the room that didn't feel what I felt because that was me, right? And maybe me and me acting in that way didn't compensate for the entire room. Yet I challenged myself to actually consider that bias, I suppose, and try to actually think wider than myself. It's really hard to explain what I mean, but there were, there was people in that room who felt like it was tokenistic and no matter what, what I did or what I felt didn't make it not tokenistic for them. But I suppose we had a conversation afterwards and we realized, well, actually, you know, we were fighting for the same goal and trying to change that culture. And so for that person, us working together didn't feel tokenistic, but the room itself did. So the conclusion was, you know, we're on the same page, but there's a lot to do to make sure this doesn't feel tokenistic. But it just was interesting for myself to reflect after that meeting and suddenly realize, oh gosh, I thought that was fine. But actually what that person said made me realize that was my own kind of assumptions and bias. It's really interesting, Nick, thank you. Okay. I'm glad. Um, so the next question I have for you, where do you think co-production as an approach to research will be in five years time and in 10 years time. And I think that I will ask this of you, Katie, first. Hmm. So is that about um, what my, my hopes would be for co-production or, or are you asking me what I think will happen? Hmm, interesting. Both, I, don't know. I, think, I think I'm asking you both, actually. I'd be interested okay. to hear from both sides. Okay, I'll try and keep this, this pretty short and sweet. <laughs> I think my, my hopes for co-production are very far from my fears, maybe, about what will happen. Uh, my hopes are that we continue to have co-production on the forefront of the research agenda as, as a way of working together. And that the actual process of, of how we work together becomes increasingly higher up the agenda or more important so it has more impact on the work we do rather than sort of the other way around that thing Gary was talking about being more about people rather than sort of transactions I suppose I'm a bit uh, pessimistic though about that happening 
because I just think that uh, um, so much needs to change systemically for that to be able to happen, for there to be a climate where co-production or the ethos of working together co-productively can flourish. A lot of the time it feels like in the research sort of world that we're battling against the way things are set up. And I, I also sort of get worried that there seems to have been a move in recent years to lump lots of different terms together. So to sort of, we used to talk a lot about involvement and now we talk about co-production and that's fine. But there seems to be a move to sort of lump engagement, you know, together with involvement. And for me, they're very different things. And engagement and co-production are very different things. And I know some people may think it's semantics and splitting hairs, but actually it's very important I worry that there's a move towards sort of trying to package all those things up and reduce things to a sort of a common denominator that's very simple rather than really invest in the complexity that I think co-production is about. Um, I may have wandered a bit there, but uh, I'll hand over to somebody else now. Really interesting. Thank you. Gary or Julie? Gary, go for it. That, that was Thanks for that, that's very interesting. I suppose that for ten, 10 years, what I'd like to see is that co-production becomes valued as another approach to doing research. And it's valued alongside all the other approaches there are. So it becomes fully established. And I guess for that to happen over the next sort of five to 10 years, I suppose we need to change how we value and how we evaluate research. Because at the moment, it feels like we're doing it on criteria that doesn't necessarily match with co-production. Um, so we've spoken and we about valuing the development of relationships and all of those things, where, which are very, very hard to quantify. And so therefore, because it's hard to quantify, it doesn't always, and hard to capture, I guess it doesn't always get valued as much as, as, as it should be if we're going to embrace co-production. So there's all those things, I think, that, I'd like to see the next five to 10 years really challenging, if you like, the system and disrupting the system in a positive way, if you like. And I think then hopefully there'll become a tipping point where we decide actually these current process, procedures and culture we have don't fit with co-production and therefore we need to change them. And, and by doing that, co-production will become accepted um, as the valued and just another approach, if you like, that, that's out there. And, and is totally appropriate for some piece of research or work. Now, whether or not that will happen, who knows? But I'm, I'm an optimist, so I'm, I'm hoping it will. Me too, Gary. Me too. Uh, Julie? Oh, yeah, totally agree with, with what Gary and Katie have said. Don't really have a lot to add. I mean, I guess my experience at the moment is that... Um, 10, 20 years ago when I was working in mental health and co-production was a very new term in those areas. It was quite challenging as an approach and, and for me to get more involved in the world of research and, and come across the way that, that things are being done in the RDS Southeast and also the co-production collective and to see this real emphasis and, and sort of upholding of the values of co-production is really, really exciting and, and positive development for me so I hope that it will continue in this vein but yeah as Gary and Katie have said 
there are a lot of structures and uh, processes in the research world that makes that quite a challenge. But I think we just keep plugging away, you know, gently, but firmly. Yeah, I'm totally with you, Julie. We require a lot of resilience, but if we keep chipping away, we will get there eventually and we will start to break down those age-old structures that really need to be broken down, in my opinion. Because I, yes, I agree totally. I think in 10 years time, we really should be in less need of us in these kind of roles and jobs, because hopefully it will be more established as a way of doing things. Fingers crossed. (laughs) So I now have got uh, a question for you all, which is the, the standard question that you ask of your guests. But as we're turning the tables, I'm turning it on you today. So... If there was one thing that you could wish for to further co-production, what would it be? And Julie, I'm going to start with you. Oh, well, the first thing that springs to my mind is about payments for patient and public involvement. Whatever forums I seem to be involved with or organisations, it's often a really thorny topic. And... So if there was one thing that I could wish for in in an ideal world, it would be that there was one wonderful payments policy nationally. So, you know, I work for sort of four or five different organisations in a patient and public involvement role. Each one has got a different payments policy. Um, You know, I'm currently involved in developing a payments policy and I was really grateful to be asked for my opinion on that and at the same time I kind of feel like so many people are putting so much time and energy into developing different payments policies if we just had one really well co-produced working group that reviewed this the national payments policy regularly we could just get on with it and all the the people that are involved in PPI and sort of feel like they're not quite valued in terms of payments would would just be able to feel the value of remuneration that that we all should Mm, definitely Katie Gary yeah for me it would be about changing the culture in which universities especially but research generally operate so there's a greater value in engaging with and developing relationships with the communities with which they work rather than valuing things like um, publications and having articles in referee journals, uh, um, et cetera. So that, for me, would be the biggest change that I would be. Easy, right, Gary? Yeah. Research, excellent framework and all of that. But that's where it needs to start, isn't it? You know, if yeah. you change that, you know, because we operate in a world where we have to demonstrate what it is we do and achieve. And often that comes down to um, very quantifiable things, unfortunately. But if we change that so that developing relationships, engaging with our communities, and if they were valued, I think it would create that space for enabling, facilitating co-production and ensuring that what we do is valued. Uh, Katie, what about you? Couldn't agree more with both of what you said. I guess for, for me as well, it's about investing time and resources for co-production and I, I think some um, that you know in the research projects that I've been involved in that deadlines and resources are always really stretched people are always working really really hard 
I've never worked on a research project where people have sort of had a bit, bit of extra time, put their feet up or at least just have a bit of a, a breather. And um, and that's no reflection on, you know, the people that I've worked with in the projects at all. I, I think it's just the crazy expectations that the funders seem to expect you know well we'll give you this much amount of money and we want this much done and I think when you work co-productively it always takes longer the benefits are, are massive I think not just for the research that you produce but for the people that are working on the research but you have to invest time and resources to make that happen and um, there's still far too little of either and that just makes the task much much harder Hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. So we've come to the end of the, the podcast for today. Um, is there anything else any of my esteemed guests would like to add? Julie? A little quote that I heard recently, Dan Wilsonholm said to me, oh, do you know Ros Davies? You should listen to the podcast that we did about her. And it was so inspiring and about valuing people. And she had this little phrase. She said, when people feel truly valued, that's when incredible things happen. And I was so moved by that. So I just wanted to chuck that in at the end of ours. Perfect. No need to say anything else. Thank you, everybody. And see you at the next podcast. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, everyone. Cue the music.